Well, the team will be leaving on Friday. What time Friday, Brandon? Uh, 8 a.m. And traveling 14 hours uh, south and uh, returning on May the 5th. And one thing we didn't talk about is that we are uh, going to try to have some kind of uh, technology boost where the team can communicate with us through either a video or a conference call or do something on uh, Sunday, uh, on next Sunday, the 28th. And uh, so hopefully that'll work and you'll be able to say hi to them uh, at that time. As we are um, considering what it means to fulfill the, the Great Commission, um, we're also troubled and saddened by the events of this week um, in Boston and in Texas. Um, I know many of you, we've spoken throughout the week, and um, many of you were greatly disturbed, as I was, by what happened, uh, the terrorist attack in uh, last week, uh, the first part of the week, and then what happened in Texas. And I just wanted, even though I know you've been praying and you've been asking God to be merciful to those who are still struggling, that I just thought it would be appropriate for us to spend a moment of silent prayer and, uh, and just offer your uh, prayers of blessing to those who are still hospitalized, to the grieving families, and to those who literally are terrified to leave their homes. So would you bow your heads with me for a moment of silent prayer? Gracious Father, uh, as Americans, indeed as humans, we are wounded in our spirits about what human beings can do to other human beings. We are troubled, but we also recognize, Lord, that we live in this kingdom of man that is both broken and wounded and literally crying out for new life. And Lord, the only ones that have that message of new life is the church of Jesus Christ. So our prayer this morning, Father, is not only comfort for those who are wounded, comfort for those who are grieving. Our prayer is that we, as one congregation, as many congregations throughout this United States and throughout the world, will do everything in our power to bring the light and the love of Jesus Christ to a sinful a broken and a hurting world. Father, we're plan A, and you've only had plan A, and that's the church sheds light in this dark world, and may we be that light today and in the days to come. And so, Father, as we open now the Word of God, we open our hearts to you once again. We pray that you would open our ears, uh, that we would have the ears of faith, we pray, Father, that as we uh, bring to a conclusion this study in the book of Jeremiah, that you will once again teach us, and more than teach us, that you will direct us to believe in a way that recognizes your power, your glory, and your amazing grace. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I get tired of living by faith. I know that sounds controversial and that doesn't sound a very good thing coming from your pastor, but there are times I just get tired of living by faith. And at those times, it happens two or three times a year, I drive 20 miles to the north and west to Chase Field to watch the Diamondbacks play baseball. For a couple of hours, I'm in a world that feels right to me. Remember, I was raised in an engineering family, and my undergraduate degree is in engineering. So I go to a place that for a couple of hours, everything seems right. A world defined by exactly measured lines and precise geometric patterns. Every motion on the ball field is graceful and poised. Sloppy behavior is never tolerated. Complex physical feats and and, and, and are carried out with immense skill. Errors are instantly detected and their consequences immediately experienced. Rule infractions are punished directly. The person who does not pay, play by the rules is ejected. That happened to our coach and one of our players just yesterday. Outstanding performance is recognized and appreciated on the spot. When the game is over, everyone knows who won, And everyone knows who lost. It's a world that I feel comfortable in. Uncertainty is banished. Everything is clear and obvious and fair. But then the game ends. And the world to which I return is both untidy and confusing. We live in the kingdom of man the Bible tells us, which I call the little kingdom. And yet we are supposed to be residents of the kingdom of God, the big kingdom. These two kingdoms seem to be constantly clashing. I come back to an untidy community, an untidy world where in Boston, Massachusetts, an act of terrorism just thoughtlessly takes human life and causes fear in its citizens' lives. I come back to a world that is confusing and I want to live as a man of God, but everything around me says, no, don't go that way, go this way. Everything around me says, no, that's really not a very good way to go. That's God's way. I want you to go over this way. And, and I face that dilemma and that ambiguity and it is messy and it is complicated and it is exhilarating. It's like the woman who was taken in adultery You know the story if you've been around the Bible. And that woman was confronted by the Pharisees, but Jesus intervened and he said, the first one of you that has no sin cast the first stone and they all stepped away. And then Jesus, as he was lifting her up, he said to her, these men do not condemn you, obviously, neither do I condemn you. And then he said something very confusing. He said, go and sin no more. And I guess what I want to ask Jesus is this, which is it going to be? Grace or truth? You're forgiven or don't live that way anymore? What's it gonna, and so we live in this tension. We live in this 
world where we really want to behave and yet we don't behave and we really want God's grace. But as we saw last week, God also says, listen, there's a time for judgment as well. That's the world I live in. That's the world you live in. It's very confusing. It's very ambiguous. And that's the same world that Jeremiah lived in. It was complicated. It was volatile. It was messy. And it was unfair. God says, if you go this way, your life is going to be filled with light and purpose and peace and significance. If you go this way, but if you go this way, the way of the scarecrows, if you go this way, the way of Baal and Asherah, if you go the way of the Persian gods, the Assyrian gods, you will find judgment and destruction. I promise you. And so Jeremiah, for 40 years, proclaims this message that go the way of God. God is saying, come to me. I'm, I'm going to give you life and I'm going to give you love. I'll give you purpose. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have a journey together. Come to me and the children of Israel, just like you and I, constantly say, yes, I want to come to you, but it looks so good over here in Egypt. I mean, Egypt looks so good. I know, I know. When I was in Egypt, we ate long, you know, leeks and onions. And I know we had to make bricks without any straw. And I think I kind of remember that I hated it, but... But now, man, I look back into Egypt and I think, that looks pretty good. I want Egypt. Jeremiah says to the children of Israel, as the Lord says to us today, come back to God's love. Come back to that new covenant that we talked about a few weeks ago. But Israel and Judah kept returning to what they knew. Egypt and captivity. They crossed the Red Sea. And God says, I told you, I promised you I'd redeem you from the oppression of the Egyptians. I promised you I would deliver you from that oppression, from the oppression of Pharaoh. I promised you I would deliver you. And now you're delivered. And what do you do when you're delivered? You begin to complain. Well, I want water. So God gives them fresh water. Well, I want um, something to eat, so God gives them manna. Well, I want some meat, so God gives them quail. And on and on and on. And God said, here's my way, here's my path, here's my love, here's my grace. And But they said, but I want something else. I want to do it my way. I want to go, I, I, I'm thinking about going back to Egypt. God, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments. And, and when he comes down, the children of Israel have built a, a, a pagan a golden statue. What, what's that about? Going back to Egypt. Going back to the way that I know. Yeah, I know my life today is I was a believer. It's, it's pretty good. But, but man, some of those things in my past, some of those things back in Egypt, they're pretty good and they're pretty powerful and they're, they're calling my name. So I had a, a man that I knew when I was growing up. His name was Harry. Uh, Harry Lillibridge. Uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now. But um, Harry was my sixth grade Sunday school teacher. And um, in our little church, we had four sixth grade boys. And, um, you know, in those days, in the 50s and the 60s, you went to church whether you liked it or not. And you went every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday. And so we were there, all four boys every Sunday. And Harry Littlebridge was our teacher. And I don't remember anything that he taught, but I do remember he loved us and he cared for us. And I do remember at the end of every class period, he would ask us four boys, same four boys, uh, he would lead us in a prayer of salvation. Okay, ask Jesus into your heart, forgive you of your sins. And of course, I, I had no idea. I mean, I, I knew I was a Christian, but 
just in case I miss something, I do it again. You know, I'll put another stake in the ground. And so we would pray this every. And so I remember that of Harry's. Well, I'd grow up and I move away, go to college, go to seminary. Um, and I hear through family members that Harry has um, uh, confessed that oh, he's not confessed, but somebody's found out that he's a closet closet alcoholic. And uh, the church found out and they they uh, were very stern with him and were harsh with him. And they said, you've got to clean up your act before you come back to church. Just exactly the opposite of what a church should do. The church should be saying, come alongside you and embrace you and say, how can we walk with you through this so that you can be healed instead of just kicking them under the bus? That's another sermon. Actually, that's a whole other series of sermons. And so Harry was kicked under the bus. The church ignored him. And Harry continually went back to Egypt. He continued, looked over, nobody was there to walk with him. Nobody was there to call him to a life of faithfulness. Nobody was there to love him. He was a bachelor. He had no wife, no children, no relatives. He lived by himself and he died by himself. No one knew he died for four days until a neighbor went over and knocked on his door. So this was 10 years ago when Harry died and I was home in San Diego for something and I happened to notice in the paper that his obituary was listed, Harry Lillibridge, and that he lived and he died. And then there was a memorial service for him that afternoon at 2 o'clock at El Cajon Mortuary, a small mortuary uh, where I grew up. And I told Sherry, I said, you know what, I haven't seen him for 30 years, but I, I, need, to, I need to go and just honor. You know, I, his life was rough, but he, he taught me about Jesus. He was a broken vessel. He was cracked and wasn't very effective always, but, but he loved Jesus and he was doing his best. And I want to go and honor him. So I did. I went to the memorial service and I looked around and, well, I was the only one there. Not another soul was there. Uh, the preacher even asked me, he said, uh, do you still want to do this service or do you want to just go home? I said, no, let's do it. I, I, this man meant something to me. And, but then I thought about Harry. And why was it that every time and I knew this man loved God. Why was it this time, every time this man was in a position to where he wanted to press into Jesus and say, God, help me. This hidden sin that I have, this hidden secret of my alcoholism, God, help me. And why is it he continually, instead of being embraced by the church and embraced by people, why is it he continually looked back to Egypt and say, well, this, this, this one time this drink won't hurt. This one time, I'll be able to control it. And a man lived and died loving Jesus, but always looking back to Egypt. How often do we do that? How often do we say, you know what, I love living this life of faith and it's good, but man, there's something back there that is really drawing my, is calling my name. It's something really exciting. And I know I've turned my back on it. I'm turning toward But there's something about that that just calls my name. That was Jeremiah and the children of Israel. That was Hope Covenant Church and modern day people in our world today. Constantly living in this world of tension and this world of ambiguity between grace and truth, between judgment and salvation. And we're going, what do we do? And into that, Jeremiah speaks this amazing, profound prayer. In chapter 32 of Jeremiah He ties all of these loose ends up about all of this ambiguity. And in this prayer, he calls out to God. Listen to this prayer. This prayer is so wonderful because this is like the exactitude of Chase Field. This is God saying, okay, now get focused. Listen to this. 
And so we read the prayer from chapter 32, verses 17 to 25. Jeremiah begins, O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show unfailing love to thousands, but you also bring the consequences of one generation's sin upon the next. Do you hear Jeremiah's words? Grace, God, you're giving a thousand people, a thousand generations of love, truth, but you're calling them to the consequences of their sin, grace and truth, back and forth. You have all wisdom and do great and mighty miracles. You see the conduct of people and you give them what they deserve, truth. You perform miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Grace. Things still remembered to this day. And you have continued to do great miracles in Israel. And all around the world, you have made your name famous to this day. Verse 21. You brought Israel out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders. Grace. And a strong hand and powerful arm with overwhelming terror. You gave the people of Israel this land you had promised their ancestors long before. A land flowing with milk and honey. Our ancestors came and conquered it and lived in it, but they refused truth to obey you or to follow your word. They have not done anything you commanded. That is why you have sent this terrible disaster upon them, truth and judgment. Verse 24. See how the siege ramps have been built. Remember last week we talked about chapter 39. We kind of went backwards today to wrap up the series. I want to wrap it up with this prayer. Chapter 39 showed the Babylonians overran Jerusalem and they were conquered. Well, this is as it's preparing to happen. The siege ramps, they have built these ramps up to Jerusalem to go and get over the wall of Jerusalem and destroy the people of God. See how the siege ramps have been built against the city walls. Through war, famine and disease, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who will conquer it. Truth. Everything has happened just as you said. Truth. And yet, O Sovereign Lord, you have told me to buy the field, paying good money for it before the witnesses, even though the city will soon be handed over to the Babylonians. Now, that last part's kind of weird. Let me tell you a little, give you a little context. God said before the Babylonians took over Jerusalem, there's a piece of property out there in the area where the enemy is camped. <laughs> it's like the ghetto. You know, the enemy's camped there. Don't go there. And, he said, and uh, so, uh, Jeremiah, what I want you to do is I want you to buy that piece of property. Oh, really? All this territory is going to be owned by the Babylonians and they're going to be in charge of that and we're going to all be in jail or dead and you want me to buy that piece of property? Yes, I do. And and also, let me tell you something else, Jeremiah. I want you to buy that piece of property for the full price. I want you to pay Scottsdale prices even though it's South Phoenix property. Okay? That's what I want you to do. And Jeremiah goes, Okay. I guess I'll do that. And now I'll I'll talk about that at the end of the message because it really has a a poignant, uh, powerful impact. But I want us to look at this prayer. This prayer is is really in four sections. And And I want you to get a feel as we close this series on Jeremiah for what Jeremiah's call is to the people of Israel and what God's call is to you and me today. Why does Jeremiah affect us today? There are four parts to Jeremiah's prayer. And the first part is more than a prayer. Actually, it's less than a prayer. The first part of the prayer is literally a groan. Oh, sovereign Lord. Now, you could translate that in the Hebrew to alas, or oh my God. It's a cry from the soul, 
Four times Jeremiah uses a phrase like this. Another one in Jeremiah 1.6 at the beginning of the book. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. He cries out to God. I don't even know what to say, God. I, help me. I'm dying here. Whenever Jeremiah had a crisis in his life, whenever he did not know what to do, he didn't even know what to say to God. The enemies attacked. His soul cried out to the Lord. Has that ever happened to you? Where your soul was so broken, your life was so crippled, and you prayed out to God and words wouldn't even come out. God, I don't even know what to say. I, I think we probably all had those kinds of experiences. I, I've had several of those in my life, and they're not pretty. But at those moments, it also reminds me that God is listening not so much to my words because the words don't even come out. He's listening to the cry of my heart. And that's what he did with Jeremiah. So back in 1989, when our son Tyler, at the time 10 years of age, was hit by a, an automobile on his bicycle, um, for 24 hours, the doctors didn't know what the seriousness of the injuries were. He wasn't wearing a helmet. He had a brain injury. But there, there was so much swelling there, they couldn't do anything until that was relieved and they could measure if there was any brain activity. 24 hours after the accident, Sherry and I were in the ICU room with Tyler. He was hooked up to all the stuff. And the doctor came in and he told us, he said, Mr. and Mrs. Cross, I am so sorry. We've now been able to measure uh, and there is absolutely no brain activity whatsoever. And this prayer was in me so deeply. I remember I, I stood on the side of the, this, this ICU room and I pounded my fist on the wall. And I don't even know what I said, but God saw and he heard. And you could see, it's like the Spirit of God in me was saying, Father, Father, look at Dwayne and Sherry. They're really hurting right now. Please, Father, help them. They need you right now. They need your presence. They need your grace. They need your love. And words that I couldn't even express, the Spirit was expressing to the Father on our behalf. Has that ever happened to you? Where the pain has been so deep that you can even speak the words. That's what I love about Jeremiah. He is so real and he is so raw and is so now. Oh, sovereign Lord, what do I do? These people I've been preaching to for 40 years, I've been praying and hoping that they would come back to you. Instead of saying, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, they would come back on their knees and they would say, God, we forgive us for chasing after scarecrows. Forgive us for chasing after those shiny, shiny gods. Forgive us, forgive us. Help us, Father, to follow you and to trust you and to love you. Jeremiah said, I've done this for 40 years. Oh, sovereign Lord, what do I do now? Now I'm seeing the Babylonians are going to attack and wipe out my people. Is 40 years of work done nothing? There's this depth to this prayer. There's this soul to this prayer that probably most of us have experienced that. It was Brian and Michelle when baby Jack was born without any breath. My son, when he came to me years ago, after his wife told him he wanted a divorce, you just hold somebody and they weep and there's no words, but the, but the Spirit of God says, Father, take care of this one. Father, take care of this one. This one doesn't have even words to say. That was Jeremiah's heart. And sometimes that's our heart. God knows. The Holy Spirit interprets. My child is really suffering. Father, what will we do? There's another part to Jeremiah's prayer. This is so real. 
after the Spirit intercedes on behalf of Jeremiah, Jeremiah speaks these words. Great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. He doesn't say, God, you know what? I really get you. (laughs) I really understand you because who does? You know, God, you and I are buddies, you know, and we kind of have a sympathetic, oh, we, we know it. No, he doesn't say that. He says, God, first of all, I have no words to say how I feel about my people who are going to be destroyed. And Father, at the same time, I also know how great you are. Great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. And, and Jeremiah begins by talking about creation. He says, look around us. Now, he, he wasn't telling God, God, look at all the things you've done because God already knew he did them. But he's reminding himself. Father, I look around me and I see the the universe and the stars and I see a baby and I see a human being and I see an apple tree and I see all these amazing things and I I say, surely, God, you are real. You are real. We we see you. You're plastered all all over creation. He made all things. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever go to the Grand Canyon or like one, one teenager in our church, his family went to the Grand Canyon and he looked at it and he said, yeah, that's a big hole. Okay, let's go home. You know, I mean, don't, don't we have more awe than that? You know, more, wow, God, amazing. You know, we look up at the stars at night and uh, where Sherry is staying, she's staying with Vicki Reed's sister and right on the shore of Lake Huron and there's, this, there's all these animals and, and trees and water and it's just beautiful and you go, Lord, thank you. This is, this is amazing what you have done. We, we need to be awed by creation, right? So um, one of the problems with Sherry being gone for a month is that we are, because of her, grandparents to many of the kids in our church. And uh, she is Ama. Okay, Ama is Chinese for grandma. And I'm gong gong, don't ask. And, uh, and so Ama has gone, right? So all that's left is gong gong. So Maya Cisnero is one of our grandkids here in town. Uh, she brings me her journal and she writes a question and then she wants one of her grandparents to answer it. And her grandparents aren't close by, so we get to be the grandparents. And so the question was, what is your favorite bug and why? Well, Ron, I've never considered what my favorite bug is. Never crossed my mind. Have you ever thought of, well, let's ponder this. What's my favorite? No, we don't think about that. But I did think about it because I was asked to by one of my grandkids, right? Okay, so what is my, you know what? I really love caterpillars. They're kind of warm and fuzzy. They're different colors. They're cool because they turn into butterflies. And the more I thought about that, thank you, Maya, the more I thought about that, the more I realized the amazing, incredible thing of God's creation. Stop and think about it. You know that old phrase, stop and smell the roses? That's true. Stop and smell the coffee. That's something man-made. But stop and smell the roses. You know, that's something we need to do. So this... Christian doctrine of creation is constantly coming under attack, right? We're constantly told by the world that eh, it's not right. And the problem with uh, kind of the juxtaposition to creationism is not evolution. The juxtaposition to creationism is uh, naturalism. Okay, naturalism has been around a lot longer than evolution. And uh, that was what they believed in Jeremiah's day that we see all of these things. And even in our gods, we see nature and we see all of this and it's all awesome and beautiful. And, and, and so this idea of naturalism, it's this dominant worldview of a pagan culture. Jeremiah's day, it's still true in our day. It is the belief, notice the word belief, not fact, that nature is all there is. There is no God, no soul, no spirit, only matter in motion. In other words, some way, time way back, 
some primordial slaw or slew or slush came together and boom, with a bing bang or some way, that thing turned into you. Okay? Now that takes so much faith. That takes more faith than I've got. I just don't have enough faith to believe in naturalism. But God, and this idea in the last 15 years of intelligent design, and there's been a lot of controversy between evolutionists and intelligent design people. It's all fun and and all of that, but the bottom line is that we have replaced God with naturalism. A Harvard paleontologist, George Gaylord Simpson, put it like this. Man is the result of a purposelessness and natural process that did not have him in mind. Okay, that's a Harvard paleontologist. By the way, Harvard originally was a seminary designed to treat, teach men to preach the Word of God, but that's another discussion. So, man is the result of a purposelessness and natural process that did not have him in mind. In other words, the existence of human beings is an accident and the product of chance. Well, there's a critique of naturalism, one of the many. Uh, University of California at Berkeley, a professor. I, I love this guy. I, lo- I read some of his stuff. His name is Professor Philip Johnson, and he's a proponent of intelligent design. And this is what he says of naturalism. Naturalism reverses the biblical doctrine of creation. And I quote, If the Bible is true, then God created mankind. If naturalism is true, then mankind created God. God is just make-believe. He does not actually exist. He is a product of the human mind. I think that's really good because I think it's really true. And we see that all the time. Even people that say they believe in God are really theistic naturalists. (laughs) They're people that say they believe in God, but really they just believe in the nature of things and the, you know, the fact that, well, things just kind of happen. But God comes along and says to Jeremiah, look at what I've done. God comes along and says to you and to me, look at my world. Look at this creation. Look at this universe. Look at all of these incredible things. Look at a flower or a snowflake. And tell me there's not some kind of intelligent design behind that. But Jeremiah goes on. He says, not only do we see God in creation, this is in his prayer, but we see God in redemption. God is constantly saying, and he says it to a thousand, thousands of people, come back to me. Come back to me. I, I love you. I want to give you life. I want to give you grace. Come back to me. I want to redeem you. And so we have examples of that all through Scripture again. And the one that we've been talking about is when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, that exodus was their redemption. That's why you use that word. They were taken from slavery to freedom. It's redemption. They were delivered. The Greek word for salvation means redemption, delivered, safety. Okay? They had all of those things. They were taken from Egypt and they were safe and they were redeemed and they were delivered and they were free from the rule of the Egyptians. And yet some of them still did what? Yeah, but those leeks and onions, man, I really miss those. And that was so good, you know, and they look back. Egypt wasn't that bad. I mean, they forget so quickly. And they're always looking back. And God says, listen, I redeemed you. And there's another beautiful picture of God's redemption. And that picture is what we just celebrated a few weeks ago on Good Friday. When Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, the last words he spoke, if you were at our Good Friday service, is this. It is finished. Which translates means specifically these words, paid in full. When Jesus breathed his last breath, the salvation of 
you and me, of all people who believe and trust in God of all time, past, present, future, they were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. They were saved. Paid in full. The price for your sins, the price for those who believed in Jeremiah's day, paid in full. There's a story, um, a wonderful story, of a little boy who loved to create things and build things. And so one day he got this idea that he wanted to build a boat, a small boat, a toy boat. And so his daddy helped him. He got him a nice piece of balsa wood and he helped him shape it. And then the boy did all the work. He sanded it and he, he, he cut it out so that it looked like a real boat. He put a sail in it. He painted it a beautiful color of red and just always oh, just really, really neat. And he tested it in a tub of water and it worked. And so that big day came and his dad and he took it down to the stream and they set it free in the stream and they walked along the stream as the boat just went along and it was sailing beautifully and a little wind would come up and take it and they walked a little faster and they started running and pretty soon the boat was out of their sight and way down the stream. They went back, got in the car, looked for miles, couldn't find their boat. The boy was crushed. This boat that he had made is now no longer mine. Well, a month later, uh, Dad had some business south of the city, uh, 100 miles, and they drove down there. The little boy went along with them. They're walking down the main street. They went by a pawn shop, and in the pawn shop window, the little boy saw this red boat. And he said to his dad, he said, Daddy, I think that's my boat. And your dad said, you know what, you might be right. Let's go in and check it out. So they went into the pawn shop. They asked the owner. They said, can we see that boat? He said, sure. They looked at the little boat, and he said, Daddy, this is my boat. This is the boat I made. And he said, Mr., Mr., this is the boat I made. This is my boat. And the, old, the guy that owned the pawn shop said, no, it's not. That's my boat. <laughs> I paid for it yesterday, right? Now, now you, can, you can buy it back, but it's my boat. And so you know what happened. The dad coined over the money, and they bought the, boy, they bought the boy's boat back, and they took it outside. And when he got outside, he said to his dad, you know what, Dad? Uh, this boat belongs to me twice. Once because I made it, and once because we bought it back. That's exactly what God did with you. He created you, and he redeemed you. When, because of your sin, you went way downstream, far away from God, God redeemed you. You belong to him because you were created by him and you are redeemed by him. And that was part of Jeremiah's prayer. There's another part of Jeremiah's prayer. Jeremiah worships God for his glorious attributes. Nothing is too hard for you, Jeremiah says. That's the omnipotence of God. And then he goes into this amazing uh, discourse about God's great love for his people, his covenant love. Jeremiah says, you show your unfailing love to thousands. Can you imagine? You show your unfailing love to thousands. Do you know what God would say today? If we were to say, God, how have you shown your love? He would say, I have shown my unfailing love to millions and billions of people for the last 6,000 years. I have shown my love to all of these people if they would only receive that great gift of love. One of the greatest characteristics of God and his life is his covenant love for you and for me. Now, it's best illustrated by Jeremiah. Remember in Jeremiah, uh, at the first part of Jeremiah, when they discovered uh, the, the, the book, uh, discovered in the rubble of Jerusalem, it was part of the Torah, the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. 
and Deuteronomy. And that part of the Bible, well, part of that was Exodus. Part of that was the Ten Commandments. And so they had that in their hands once again after being in exile and having Jerusalem destroyed. So they had this, and that was part of them. And so Jeremiah refers to Exodus when he says this in Jeremiah 32:18. He said, you, God, bring the punishment for the father's sins into the laps of their children. Now, Jeremiah just says something that is obvious to all of us, and it's this. That the sins of the fathers and the grandfathers are passed on generation after generation after generation. We all know this. Uh, We have people in our church, just like every other church, people that were abused physically, emotionally, sexually by a parent, a father, an uncle, someone in the family whose lives are changed forever because of that. And God is saying, not only just not just that, but all kinds of sin in your life. The fact that you simply ignore God and say, I like that shiny God over there. You pass that on from generation to generation. You pass on that idea that here's where we really need to believe, boys and girls, as your children are growing up. You know, we talk about God over here, but this is how we live over here. We live because of this shiny God or because of this scarecrow. This is how we really live. You pass that on from generation to generation, and then you wonder why your kids get off the rails. You wonder why they don't believe in God and trust in God. That's what he's saying here. From generation to generation, this dysfunction, this sin, this brokenness is passed on to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. But here's the good news. And Jeremiah refers to it, and we know it from Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 uh, is where you can find the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, it begins by saying, Okay, for the second and third generations, the sins of the fathers is passed upon their kids. In other words, that dysfunctional... I'm not going to love God, and so the kids grow up not loving God. That dysfunctional, I'm going to hurt you, so these kids grow up hurting others, and that kind of dysfunction. He says that will go on for generation after generation, but, chapter, chapter 20, verse 6 of Exodus, but God will lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations to those who love me and obey my commands. A thousand generations. Yes, it's terrible that generation after generation we pass on this dysfunction and this sin. It's terrible. But God says every generation has the opportunity, and you're that generation, brothers and sisters in Christ. Every generation has the opportunity to say, it stops here with me. It stops now. No longer will I hurt my children. No longer will I tell them about that shining God over there. It stops right here, right now. And we are going to follow the Lord. As Joshua said, we will, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you start that. And for a thousand generations of faithfulness, God says, I promise you, I will make your life matter. Do you love that? Jeremiah says this in his prayer. He said, I know that it's scary and I know that things haven't been good, but God has promised that there is something over the control, the conquering of the Babylonians. There's something over what happened in Boston. There's something over these school shootings. And that's something that's over is God's grace and his purpose and his plan. And you start it with your generation right now today. Thank God for my great grandfather. I remember my great-grandfather singing to me about Jesus and my grandfather and my father. And now my son does to his kids. And I thank God for that. And we're just five generations of the next 1,000 if the Lord tarries. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when Jeremiah speaks this word, it is powerful. He said, God, you're almighty. You see and know everything. 
but you are a God who wants to give grace and wants to give love to a thousand generations. Jeremiah says, we praise you for your covenant love. We praise you for your unconditional grace. We praise you for your eternal mercy and your vast uh, love. And there's one last thing in this prayer, and it's this. Jeremiah says to the Lord, your eyes are upon, are open to the ways of men. Now, what that means literally is that you see all men and all things that men do. You see all men and all things that men do. Now, this is where we bring in this story about buying the property. As I mentioned before, God says to Jeremiah, uh, see that, uh, that plot of land over there, you know, where Babylonia is marching on you and about ready to crush Jerusalem? See, I want you to go and buy that land at Scottsdale prices. And, uh, but why, God? Well, don't ask why. Just pay attention. I want you to buy that land. And Jeremiah says, okay, I'll do that. Now, we don't really know all the details of that, but we do know this. Part of purchasing that land was God, just like he said with Abraham, when God took that knife, he said, I want you to take your son Isaac and make him a sacrifice. Part of purchasing that land was drawing up that knife and getting ready to thrust it in the heart of your son. Why? Simply for one reason and one reason only. Because God said so. God said, I just need you to trust me on this. Um, Abraham, you need to trust me on this. Jeremiah, you need to trust me on this. I know you don't see it, but that overwhelming Babylonian army that's going to come in and crush Jerusalem, it looks like the last chapter. It looks like nothing more will be written. It looks like there's no chance for anything else. I want you to know that one day that property will be yours again, Jeremiah. And I want you to tell your people. God knows all things. He sees the big picture, the panorama, the beginning from the end. We're stuck in the now. And we have a trust problem sometimes because of that. Oh, God, my toe hurts. Well, you know what? It's not going to hurt forever. And if it does, one day you're going to die and go to heaven and you won't have a hurt toe. So get over it. And, and so, you know, the, the whole idea is that we think that right now, the pain I feel right now is the thing. No, this is the little kingdom. This is not permanent. God says, I want you to see the big picture. He said, I promise you, I will write the last chapter. Jeremiah's prayer is so amazing. There's a deep cry from the soul, and he knows our cry from the soul. How great are your works in creation and redemption. The glorious attributes of your covenant love and the fact that your eyes are open to the ways of men. You see me, God. You know me. You know where I live. You know my name. The last part of Jeremiah's prayer is this amazing restoration. Now, again, he goes by this property. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know, he's just doing it. And God says, let me show you kind of a glimpse into the future, Jeremiah. Because Babylonia overwhelmed. We know that historically. They overwhelmed. And in fact, the, the, the Jewish people did not have possession where they were the owners for 2,635 years after this. Not until 1948. So it was a long, long time. Now, they, had, they were present there. They lived there at different times, but always under Roman rule or somebody else's rule. So God says, but I want you to see something in the future. I want you to know that my eyes are still on my children. I want you to know that in spite of their disobedience time after time again, in spite of their chasing after that shiny God and chasing after that, that scarecrow, I want you to know, I want you to know that God's grace is always there. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 32. This is powerful. Now I want to say something more about this city. You have been saying it will fall to the king of Babylon through war, famine, and disease. 
But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Verse 37. I will certainly bring my people back again from all the countries where I will scatter them in my fury. Isn't that amazing? How many times does God have to forgive? How many times is He willing to forgive? I will bring them back to this very city and let them live in peace and safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one purpose. Isn't that beautiful? To worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. Thousand generations, I would add. That I will make them an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me and they will never leave me. I will find joy doing good for them and will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in this land. That is God's promise for you. If you just return to God, God will lavish His praise and His grace on you. If you're a prodigal son, you come back from a far land, having lived in Egypt and and eaten the pig's slop, and you come back humbly and broken before God, and God says, I'll put a robe on you, a ring on your finger, and we'll kill the fatted calf, because you matter to me. God's deep heart desire is that He is waiting for you. Arms wide open. Don't you know how much I love you, He says. Did you know that deep in your soul? I hear your cries. I know your heart. And I will chase you to the end of the earth. So we come to the end of our study of the weeping prophet. Now you know why he was crying all the time. He thought that his people that he preached to for 40 years, that his people that he loved and did everything, that there was no hope for them. God is constantly calling God's people to come home. Come home to restoration. Come home to purpose. Come home to peace. Come home. So what happened to Jeremiah? Well, we don't know for sure. That's always interesting. I had uh, an aunt. Her name is Aunt Dorothy. And she's one of my favorite aunts growing up. And because she was an avid reader like I was as a kid. And one summer I stayed at their house. I was 15 years old and I worked at my uncle's gas station in Glendale, California. And um, during that time she was constantly reading. And I asked her about the book she was reading. And she read two kinds of books. She wasn't a believer. She read, I'm not saying that if you read these books you're not a believer. Don't hear that. Because she read romance novels and she read mysteries. And I read a lot of mysteries and I'm a believer. So she read romance and she used to say to me, she said, Dwayne, you know, a story is no good. Unless at the end somebody gets married or somebody gets shot. You know, it's the only way you can tell if there's a, if a good story. If at the end of it, somebody gets married or somebody gets shot. But life seldom provides such definitive endings. Life is ambiguous. It's messy. Grace and truth. There's tension between the little kingdom and the big kingdom. And God is giving us the faith to live in that tension. So Jeremiah's life ends inconclusively. We want to know the end, but there is no end, at least that we know for sure. The last scene of Jeremiah's life shows him, as he had so much of his life, preaching God's word to a contemptuous people. We want to know what happened. But he doesn't get married and he doesn't get shot. In Egypt, the place he doesn't want to be, with people who treat him badly, he continues determined, faithful, 
magnificently courageous and trusting in the all-knowing, all-seeing, outrageously loving Jehovah God. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, what a man was Jeremiah. Imperfect, for sure. At times, faithless, but what a man of God. Lord, through this study, our desire is not just to gain information so that we know something about someone. Our desire is that we take the truth that we see in Jeremiah and we apply it to our own lives. And that truth is so clear and it is so profound. And it is this. We have an enormous capability and capacity to go away from God. We have an enormous opportunity to fall away from God if we just simply listen to the calls of Egypt. But your grace, with your arms wide open, is calling us home. Come home to my love. Come home to my people. Come home to my grace. Lord, thank you so much for this amazing truth from this amazing book. We know that we will look at those shiny gods at times. There will be times that we will think a scarecrow is the answer, but you will call us home once again. Come back to my love and grace and forgiveness and be restored to your faith. May that be the case for every one of us who are believers. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And all of God's people said, Amen. As we have concluded this great book of Jeremiah, Amen. In your grow group,